gracious Heavenly Father, uh, may you receive our praise as we lift up the name of Jesus and we declare our absolute trust in you in the face of a world that is often full of turmoil that would give us reasons to fear. And I pray now that your word would also work unto that end as it is preached. May its truth and its perfection not just be doctrines that we hold to, but may they be a hope that we cling to as we hear in your word what you have done, what you are doing, what you promised to do. And may your Holy Spirit work through that, that we would cling to Jesus, our dear Savior, that our hope would be in him and that our trust would be in him and that our fear would only be of what is truly fearful, not of men, that we would be comforted by you and held in waiting and patience until the day when Jesus returns. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. In 2018, an academic study published in Antiquity Journal sought to answer the question, what was the worst year in history? A team of historians and archaeologists spent a great deal of time doing extensive research, and they settled on the year of our Lord, 536. That year, a volcanic eruption in Iceland spread a cloud of ash over Europe, Africa, as far as Asia for up to 18 months, causing temperatures even in summer to go below freezing, killing crops, and leading many people to die of starvation and sickness. This, was, uh, this uh, period of starvation was intensified uh, when the first uh, major advent of the Black Plague appeared a couple of years later. The Byzantine historian Procopius wrote, The sun gave forth its light without brightness, like the moon during this whole year. Men were free neither from war, nor pestilence, nor any other thing leading to death. Not a single thing leading to death were those men free of in 536. Now, despite these findings in Antiquity Journal and the testimony of Procopius, I often hear it said that it was not 536 that was the worst year in history, but rather that that would be 2022, or maybe 2021 or 2020. This has generally been something that people have felt since the beginning of sin, since the beginning of God's people, that you'll find people saying in just about every age, Christ had better return soon, because I cannot imagine how things could get any worse. Look at how awful things have become. This is clearly the worst period in history. And honestly, that makes some sense. I understand what people are feeling when they say that. The true church has in every age felt the sting of sin, persecution of opposition from the world, even from those who claim to be God's people. So much so that it can be very easy to feel in moments of hopelessness like God's plan must be on the ropes that the opposition is becoming just too much. These must be the worst days in history. And that feeling that we have, that things are as bad as we can get, can make us feel justified, even like it's the righteous thing to do when we slip into despair, into anger, into fear about the state of the world around us. 
Now, you would be hard-pressed to find a time in the history of God's people when things seemed more bleak than in the exile in Babylon. Judah went from being a people living in the land God had promised them, enjoying its fruits, sitting under a king who loved God and obeyed his law, to slowly becoming a people who were outside of God's promised land, away from the temple, under the leadership of a king who thought that he was a god. It would have been very easy for those people to give in to despair, to feel like God's plan was on the ropes. And it wasn't just the Babylonians that they had to be afraid of. Even among those who said they were Israel, so many people had stopped trusting God, stopped hoping in his Messiah, mocking his prophets and those who held to the hope that they promised. Isaiah had just finished saying in the passage we read last week, who among you fears the Lord and obeys his servant? Remember Isaiah pointed out a division in God's people people between those who were hoping and trusting in the coming of the Messiah and those who said, no, I'm going to trust in my own strength. The only person who can get things done for me is me. This is still a great cause of fear and anxiety in the church that there is such a division. So many people who say that they are Christians, but who hate the gospel who don't believe God's word is true, who are very happy to stand next to the people of the world and say, yes, those people are wicked. We should hate them together. Hurling accusations at God's church. So there's enemies outside the church. There's enemies inside the church. There's a government that hates God. What a horrible situation they had in Babylon. And we still feel that today. So easy to give in to fear. So Isaiah turns now to speak to those people who do love the Lord, who do hope for salvation. And this passage is a little bit of a pep talk. You're feeling scared, but God says you do not need to be afraid. In fact, you must not be afraid. So let's read Isaiah 51, verses 1 to 16. We're going to do a couple of short passages over these next couple weeks, and then Derek will pick up with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 51, verses 1 to 16. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people's. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, my arm will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at his revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, 
and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. And he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. This is the word of the Lord. This passage is full of commands. Look, listen, give attention. Isaiah wants his readers focus. He wants all of their attention on him. Open your eyes and ears. Now, he's not quite talking to those blind and deaf people that he has referenced earlier in the book, those people who have totally rejected God's word. He names his audience a couple of times. Verse 1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. So if this passage follows from what he said last week, these are the remnant among God's people who are trusting in his promises, who are waiting for his servant, the Messiah. Their trust is in God's righteousness, his salvation. So even if they don't yet know his name, these are the people whose trust is in Jesus. But even with this hope, they are still giving way to fear. So Isaiah tells them, listen up. Their fear is making it hard for them to hear, hard for them to hear God's promises. Isaiah wants to rouse them because what he's about to say could be the difference between them holding on to God, persevering in his promises, or giving way to fear and despair and giving up on faithfulness to God and his Messiah. Isaiah tells us what these people are afraid of. There are men, he says, who reproach them, who revile them, men who hate those who pursue God's righteousness and seek the Lord. He says they are feeling the wrath of the oppressor, the one who sets himself to destroy. They're being mocked and threatened for their faith. Teenagers, you know what is perhaps the greatest threat, the greatest pressure that you feel to reject God's word. That comes from the fear that you are going to be mocked and scorned that you're going to be the one without any friends, the one who is hated by their peers. There is a desperate pressure pulling at you, isn't it? To make everybody think well of you. To have secure, affirming friendships. To be somebody who doesn't have to be afraid when you show up at school. Afraid when you go out into society of how strange you are. 
that temptation doesn't go away when you get older. It just looks a little bit different. We still feel that temptation, don't we? To make the world a place where everybody loves and respects us, where everybody thinks we make good choices. Everybody thinks that we are the wise ones that they should look up to. Everybody thinks well of us. Nobody scorns us. Nobody opposes us. God calls that fear. He calls it the fear of men. And it wasn't just the Babylonians that made God's people fear. We've seen this all through history. This was the fear that kept so many Pharisees from accepting Jesus. They saw his miracles, they saw his wisdom, they saw that this was clearly the man who was fulfilling all of God's promises. But they were just too afraid to put their trust in him. It's for this reason, all throughout Israel's history, that prophets were rejected, even killed, as they brought the word of God to God's people. This fear has always been one of the greatest threats to those who would desire to trust in God and his salvation. So God's central command is quite simple. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of men. Verse 7, fear not the reproach of men, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Verses 12 and 13, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? And the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. God takes our fear of men seriously. He sees it as a serious threat to our faith that we allow to fester in our hearts. And that's not to say that we are exaggerating the things we're afraid of or making them up. There really are men here who hate God and who scorn his people. They really are being threatened with oppression and with wrath. Men hate God. There are many people who hate the gospel. They hate that it says that we are sinners who need a savior, that we are doomed to wrath. They would like to see that kingdom fail. But God says, when our only focus is on the opposition of men, it will take over your mind. It will be all that you worry about. It will block everything else out from view. All of your energy, all of your emotion will be controlled by people. They become your idol. And so you will dwell continuously in fear, a fear that would even make you forget God, who he is and what he says. His words aren't real to you anymore. They can't move you. The actions of the government, your family members, your neighbors, they can fill you with this desperation to act, this emotion to surge, this desire to hide. But the exhortations of God, who he is, what he desires for you, what he would have you do, those are forgotten as soon as we read them. Their influence over our hearts gets less and less as this world takes over our view. This is why Isaiah is shaking his people. Look right here. Listen to this. Because it's getting harder and harder for you to remember. In this passage, God is telling us, take your eyes off of the people that you fear and put them on him. Look at what he has done in the past. Look at who he is today. Look at what he promises to do in the future. That's what we're going to do now. First, God directs his people to look at the past. God says, that they are so afraid of men that they have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. God says, how can you be afraid of creatures when you are on the side of their creator? 
the one through whom we all live and move and have our being. When you can't take your eyes off of the opposition of the men around you, God says, just look down. What is underneath your feet? The earth, I made that. <laughs> look up. What is above you, the sky? I made that. All of those actions of people who frighten you so much that are taking over your view are just this tiny drama playing out on the vast canvas of God's creation. I lost my place here. <laughs> We've already seen that when God calls himself the maker in Isaiah, he's not just pointing to the world that he created. He's pointing to how he made Israel his people. He uses his name as creator primarily to talk about how he took a people from the enemies of God in this world and formed them into a people for himself. And here Isaiah is telling them, as much as you are forgetting what a big deal it is that God created the world, I also think you're forgetting how big a deal it is that God made his people by saving them. In Babylon, God's people thought things were hopeless. His plans for them clearly seem to have been abandoned or thwarted. And we sometimes feel that way, don't we? Things just look too bleak for God's people, for his plans. It's too hard for God to come back from this. He should probably just end it all. God says, go back and ask, how did God's people become his people? How did God create them in the first place? Verses 1 and 2, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless and multiply him. Isaiah asks, how successful did God's plans look in the days of Abraham? If you think that God's remnant seems small and weak and pitiful now, how big was God's family in Abraham's day? It was a family of one. But don't worry, his wife was a part, so it doubled. Sarah could come along, so now it was a people of two. A man whose aging body was about as fruitful as a rock. And a woman whose womb was about as full as a quarry. Do you really want to say that God's people in Babylon seem to be in a more difficult conundrum than that? That things seem more hopeless than that right now? What did Abraham have? He had God's promises that God would bless him and multiply him. And Abraham believed that promise. And that was the entire difference between Abraham's situation being the most hopeless in the world and the most sure. Those promises had not changed in Babylon. They still haven't changed. They have never been rescinded they have never diminished. But you say, oh, well, Abraham didn't have the enemies and the opponents that we have. There weren't so many people against him. Well, if we're holding a competition for most hopeless moments in biblical history, why don't we go to the slavery in Egypt? Or let's look particularly at that moment when God's people are trapped with the Red Sea on one side and the armies of Pharaoh barreling towards them on the other. Can you think of another moment in history 
where God's enemies seemed more like they had the upper hand, where they really could have snuffed out all of God's plans for his people. What happened then? Isaiah says, calling out to God, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass? God made a way for the redeemed, a miraculous, mighty way by his creative power. And note that we're calling God's people the redeemed here, not the strong, not the worthy, not the capable, not those who are able to meet the dangers of the world around them. Our hope when we are opposed and oppressed is not that we are up for the task. We should not be afraid because we are not up for the task, because we have a God who is. We are the people that he saves, that he redeems, and that he is always willing to save. God allows us to enter these seemingly hopeless situations so that we can remember that so that we don't forget who he is, so we can remember who we are in him. And who is God? Isaiah says he's the dragon slayer. God calls Egypt Rahab here, as he's done before in Isaiah. Rahab was a mythical Canaanite monster used here to represent that sort of grotesque horror that Egypt could inflict in the hearts of God's people And as he does in other places, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is referred to here as a dragon. God uses these terms, as he often does throughout scripture, talking about beasts and dragons, to illustrate the fear that the opponents of God can put in his people. But he also uses these words to illustrate the power of God's enemies so that we can see the greater might of God when he crushes them. For God's people then and now Standing up against the world that opposes us can feel like facing down monsters and dragons. But God has been slaying dragons since he first redeemed his people. If you're tempted to say things have never looked so bad, never looked so bleak, never looked so hopeless as they do today, just look at Abraham and Sarah. Look at the Exodus. Look at the exile in Babylon. Look at what God did Look at how he redeemed his people. This is the true history of what God has done for his family. This is your family history. This is how God created your family, how he called your father Abraham, how he led your forefathers out of Egypt. We have the same promises as they do. He has the same dragon-slaying power today as he did then. And if you're still afraid, let me ask you this. Do things really seem so hopeless now as they might have felt 2,000 years ago when it seemed like the Messiah had finally come, his kingdom was about to be established, all God's promises were about to come true, and then all the religious leaders who should have been most excited for him to come turned on him, handed him over to the authorities, declared him guilty at a sham trial, tortured him, and executed him on a cross. How did God's people feel then? Peter denied him three times. Almost all his followers ran away and hid. Had God forgotten his promises then? Had his power to save been diminished as Jesus died on the cross? 
In fact, this most hopeless moment in history set the stage for all of God's promises coming true, for his eternal salvation being accomplished. When his power dealt the decisive blow against sin and death, when Jesus, whose death bore all the wrath and punishment that we sinners deserved on the cross, and then, breaking the curse of death, rose again. So when you are tempted to feel anxious and afraid of these days and what men can do to you, God says, you are forgetting your history. But in fact, he also says you don't have a very good grasp on the present. Because everything that God has done is meant to help us remember who he is today. Verse 12 to 15, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. There are two things that we can remember about God today. His wrath is more terrifying than anything that people can threaten you with. And his comfort is more sweet than anything that they can promise you. God says, if you are terrified of the wrath of men, what they are capable of doing to you, just stop for a moment and think of the waves of the sea. And this is actually a very somber point as we hear news about the serious storms on the East Coast. But God is making a somber point here. The roaring of the waves is just a small sign of the power of him who created them and has sovereign power over them. How can you fear men compared with that? Jesus says, when we fear men who can kill the body, we have forgotten to fear the one who can cast both body and soul into the eternal torment of hell. It's like we ignore a lion behind us because we are so afraid of a cockroach in front of us. But if God's power means he is capable of far greater wrath than any man, it also means that he can offer us greater comfort than any man. He is currently the one who has put his words in your mouth, who has covered you with the shadow of my hand, the hand that established the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. That is the power that comforts you. Our fear of men, our desperation to seek their approval comes from that same heart that is terrified of their wrath. Our fear of men doesn't just make them afraid that they might hate us. It also makes us give in so that we can have their approval. And Israel would have felt that. There was that pressure among the exiles in Babylon. If I just decided to love what the Babylonians loved, if I just chose to desire the things that they were promising me, if I just compromised my faith in God enough then they could bring stability. Look at this great and powerful city. Then I can have wealth. 
then I can have the comfort of not being afraid. I can rest secure in Babylon until Persia takes over in a few years. Then if I compromise, I can rest secure in Persia until the Greeks come, and then the Romans, and on and on and on. Men are like grass. How often does scripture need to say so? They wither and fade. And it repeats that exhortation often because we know in the moment how secure even the feeblest kingdoms can look. Today the world is offering you a life without confrontation, without strife, to feel like you are on the right side of history. If you just approve a few new views on issues like marriage or abortion or euthanasia or sexual freedom, let me ask you something about the worldview that you are being so tempted to give into. Does it seem stable to you? Does it seem safe to say that if I adopt all of the things that they are telling me to adopt, if I give in to the things that they are telling me to give in to, that history will finally have settled on these truths and we will all be able to rest forever? You think they can promise you lasting comfort? Right now, we're in the middle of social upheaval in many ways. Statues get torn down. Monuments get renamed. Men are being condemned who were considered leaders in society just a few decades ago. But do you think that's somehow going to stop? There is no safety here. Don't try keeping up with them. Don't try appeasing them. To give in to fear of men is to choose to give up your grasp upon reality and the possibility of unchanging truths. You accept deep in your heart, you know what, I might have to reject tomorrow everything that I say is true today, just to make sure that I am safe. There is no lasting comfort here. There is no lasting safety. And even if you are one of the lucky people who gets to live your whole life free from the dangers of this world, you are still going to know that gnawing feeling that this comfort is short and inadequate. The lies that we hear, the lies that we accept from made-up stories that come from Hollywood that a few years of sex and money and fame is going to equal all the happiness and comfort that you want, it's still fleeting. It is still hollow. It is still just a smokescreen to distract you from nihilism or to distract you from the wrath of God. But God, who has far more wrath than any person can muster, uses that same power in his hand to promise you real, lasting rest and comfort. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts her waste places. God knows that Zion, his people, even as they are out of Jerusalem, the city of Zion, his true Zion look in their hearts just like the city of Zion looks back in Judah. They are wasted and barren. They are in a wilderness. But God knows how to comfort people in the wilderness. God doesn't wait until his people are restored to become their comforter. God doesn't say, just wait until this whole mess is over. Then you can have joy and rest in me. He's with his people in the wilderness. God won't wait to be your comforter until your trials are done. It's not like you have to get everything in order or you've got to wait until the tumult is over and then you can have the sweet peace of Jesus again. 
No, he is with you now. He is inviting you to rest in him right now. The world can barely promise comfort and rest to those who are on top of the heap, to those who seem to be doing well. God can offer real comfort to you while the whole world is against you. Because even then, he is our father. And our father is sovereign over the whole universe. And our father promises that everything that happens is his perfect will for us to persevere in Christ. And Christ has already died for us. He is our savior now. Jesus, who bore the most horrific suffering in your place that you could never contemplate, who died and rose, did so so that he could tell you in the midst of your suffering, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But as much as that rest comes from the past and the promise, it is also bound up in looking forward to God's good promises in the future. Isaiah says to God in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Isaiah gives us a wonderful example of prayer here. He tells God's arm to wake up. He's imploring God to act according to his power. This seems pretty impudent, doesn't it? Telling God's arm that it must wake up and act. But this is God's relationship with his children. God loves to be held accountable to what he has promised. And part of the comfort that he offers today is that we can call out to him no matter what our distress is. We can call out according to his promises and then we can wait expectantly, faithfully, trusting that he loves to do what he has promised, that he loves to answer the prayer of his children. We saw in Isaiah, we saw in Peter, which Brother Kevin read for us, that the posture of a Christian at rest is one of waiting. The posture of a Christian who knows what God has done in the past and the present is one who waits patiently for the future, looks forward with faith. We know what God has promised. We are sure that he will do it. We are sure that he will do it in his timing. And Isaiah tells us, this is one of the passages where we see what we can faithfully wait for and expect God to do in the future. Verse 14, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. There is a pit of death, and it waits for all of those who trust in themselves rather than God and who say they are enemies of God's people. But his people will enjoy his salvation even from the pit of death when all of God's enemies are taken down to it. They will live and have bread and be provided for and cared for by their father and their bonds will be broken. Verse 11, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This came true after only one generation in exile. God did raise his arm. Mighty Babylon that seemed invincible was brought down and God brought his people home. And their enemies were sent down to the pit of death, defeated and crushed, even for how they had oppressed God's people. But those promises, that deliverance from death, Lasting life and joy, total freedom from sorrow, was pointing ahead to something even greater. 
Even as God's people returned from Babylon, they looked at these promises with longing for something greater. When sorrow would finally be banished from Zion forever, when joy and praise would never end, God is pointing all the way to his end game. The same end that we look forward to now, as Peter told us in Kevin's reading, that we have this same waiting, this same looking forward to the same continually true culmination for all of history. Isaiah is quite clear what that culmination is going to look like. He repeats a promise that we heard last week, that all of those seemingly powerful, wrathful men who oppose God's people would wither and rot away like an old sweater. But here he goes even further to say that this will be true of all fallen creation. Verses four to six, give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will hope for me, and my arm, for my arm they will wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. They who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. As long as God's people kept their eyes on the men of Babylon, the armies of Babylon, the towers of Babylon, their salvation seemed impossible. How could all this be brought down? But again, God says, look above the towers, look at the sky, the whole of the heavens. If Babylon seems immovable, how about the stars? The sun, the moon, all of that will be purged by God. The stain of sin will be wiped out, not just from Babylon, but from all creation, along with all those enslaved to sin, who will be brought down to the pit of death, even as punishment for how they opposed God's people. This is God's absolute promise, the certain end of anyone who has not repented of their sin and trusted in him. When will this take place? Isaiah says it comes after God's law goes out and his justice is a light after his salvation has gone out. All of this is accomplished through the salvation of Jesus. He was the one who came to proclaim God's justice. He taught God's law. He showed God's perfect standard. He showed that we all deserve the punishment of hell because we could never meet it, even as people watched his perfect life and despised how it exposed our sinfulness, even the sinfulness of the people who we thought were most righteous. But Jesus came with love for such sinners to totally bear that wrath that they deserved, to satisfy that punishment on the cross. And then as God's justice went out, magnified from the cross, so too with it went out God's salvation. And it goes out and out even to the corners of the earth, even to Winnipeg, offering hope to the darkest corners of creation. The curse has been broken. When Jesus satisfied God's justice, death was defeated and he rose again. And through him alone, salvation from that day of wrath is offered to anyone who puts their trust in him. And it is offered as a sure promise. Because Isaiah says the day of wrath that burns up all sin will not be the end. God's salvation will last forever and ever. 
His righteousness will never end. When all sin and corruption is gone, Zion will finally be able to rest, eternally established. Verse three, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. It is good to hear that God comforts us today. But that is the comfort of waiting. Waiting and hoping, as Isaiah says, even the coastlands, even creation is waiting and hoping. Our comfort ultimately rests in our assurance that God will keep his promises and a day is coming where suffering and sorrow will be totally done. Zion, God's people, his holy dwelling place, his city is now in the wilderness and it is being comforted by him there but waiting for the day when she shall be made like Eden. This is not just to say that Zion will be made more beautiful, though she will be. It's not just to say that Zion will be free from sin, though she will be. It's that this will be the place where God will dwell with his people forever. This has always been God's plan for Zion, for his people since Solomon raised the temple, since the tabernacle was built, since Abraham was called, right since we left that first garden of Eden, Zion would become Eden, the place where God walked with his children in the cool of the day. That is God's plan for Zion, even in the wilderness, even when things seem hopeless to us. He's never forgotten Zion. He's never abandoned her or replaced her. She is waiting for the day when her wildernesses, even the wildernesses over all creation will be renewed and Zion will fill the whole world with praise and joy and thanksgiving as the new Eden of God under the reign of our Savior, Jesus. That is the foundation upon which God tells his people in Babylon, even now, don't be afraid. When you can barely see past the towers of Babylon, the apparent power of its world and its mockery and its wrath, God pulls back the curtain. Look at all of creation. Look at all of history. Look at where it's been. Look at where it's going. Look at Babylon and Rome and the Mongols and the emperors of China and Japan and Britain and Russia. Look at the progressive West. They are just a span speck on God's vast canvas of history, his eternal plan for Jesus to forever punish his enemies and forever establish his people as Zion, the kingdom of Jesus. This is why God says, do not fear. This is why he keeps rousing us, shaking us. Look at this, remember this. As soon as we put down our Bibles and we walk out the door into the world, our neighbors and our coworkers make it so easy for us to forget these things. We say the Bible is true. We don't live like this is our true history, like these are our real promises. The world can choke out our view with its smaller threats and its smaller promises trying to make us forget God, the fears that we ourselves carry into this world of our neighbors and our friends rise up before us like a dragon so that you give in to despair or you live in anger and hatred or you give in to compromise and try and decide how you can go along and get along to get whatever comfort is available. But God is the dragon slayer. Our God defeats monsters. He's done it before and he'll do it again. If you have given into the fear of men, decided that these are the best days that you can have, decided this is, this is, these are the best of times, 
that you'll take what they're offering you, that you'll agree with what they fear and let them tell you what to trust, I would tell you that you need to look bigger. You need a bigger picture. Don't forget where all this is going. God is going to roll up all of sinful creation like an old rug and throw it into the pit of death. He is going to teach people what wrath to truly fear. If this is where you have put your hope, then wake up. Take your eyes off all of these little things which you have to recognize are just a microcosm in history that you are letting control your life and your choices. Look at the whole world. Look at history. Fear God. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. He died to take that wrath. He has already paid the penalty for it so that if your trust is in him, he is freely extending to you an eternal place and an eternal kingdom of comfort and joy. And if you have put your trust in Jesus, if you have totally surrendered anything you do and say, he is my savior, don't let men steal your hope from you or your joy from you. Don't let them fill you with fear. Don't let, you believe, let them make you believe that things are hopeless, that these are the darkest days. Trust in God's perfect plan. Trust in his sure salvation. Wake up to God's big truth, to what he's done, to what he's doing, to what he will do. Look at his plan for history. Look at his plan for Zion. It hasn't changed. So hand your fears over to Jesus. And wait with hope and trust and comfort that all things are working together for the good of those who love him. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. I want to close by reading you a few selections from Psalm 118. This is a psalm that we can sing now. It is a comfort to God's people. And if you struggle from this fear, let these be sweet words of comfort to you. Psalm 118, verses 5 to 8. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. Look at verse 10. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard, so hard that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteousness. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Down to verse 22. How is this all true? Because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That moment when things looked most hopeless in history, when Jesus was rejected, God was making him the cornerstone of Zion, his people eternally delivered. 
This is the Lord's doing. And oh, it is marvelous in our eyes. So this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then how do we look to the future? Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he, this is Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. So the psalmist can close. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's who your God is. That's what your God has done. This is what he promises to do. Let us not just rest in him, but rejoice in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done for us, for how you have guarded and kept your people, how you've made them for yourself by your great salvation in the days of Abraham, in the days of Egypt, and leading up to and culminating in the days of Jesus, where the most hopeless moments became the salvation of the world. Father, I pray that we would then not be afraid of these days, that we would not be afraid of men, that with our eye to the past, the present, the future, to all creation, that we would see the big picture and that our hope would ever be in you, our rest would be in you, even our joy would be in you and in Jesus, so that we would wait with patience and hope and strength for the day when your promises surely come true, when Zion will be eternally established. And if there are any who do not hope in that day, Father, I pray that they would just let go of their trust in the world and instead put their trust in you to share in that eternal hope. And may Jesus come soon, we pray. Amen.